You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So I know it's been a couple weeks since our last episode, and that episode was with Congresswoman Virginia Fox. And the reason it's been a couple weeks is I've just completed my sixth trip cross-country in the last 18 months, having driven to Phoenix to a conference where I presented a uh, presentation on union salting, and then I was up in Wyoming for about a week with some family business, and... I tell you all of this is kind of a setup to this episode. So I left to go cross country shortly after October 7th, which was the Hamas attack on Israel. And driving cross country both ways, as well as in the middle of it, I've been keeping up with the news and the commentary. And it posed to me several questions as I was driving cross country, and I've been doing some deeper diving into the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, etc. However, shortly after October 7th, and I believe it was the day after, there was a massive rally in downtown Manhattan, pro-Palestinian rally, where some of the same actors that have been involved in the union campaigns were protesting on behalf of the Palestinians. And those involved the Democratic Socialists of America as well as the Communists. And it posed to me a question, listening to the commentaries I was driving back and forth cross-country, whether or not this overt pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas, if you will, it's kind of merged together, activity on college campuses as well as just around the country has kind of tipped the scales or kind of peaked in terms of what's been happening with unions and some of the backlash that's now occurring as a result of the pro-Palestinian protests. In any case, I wanted to have a conversation with somebody who wouldn't be afraid to talk about it. And I've had Nick come on the podcast several times in the past, and we delve into issues that are not so, quote, politically correct. So I wanted to have this conversation to see what his thoughts were. So without further ado, here's Nick Calm. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Nick Calm, welcome back to Labor Relations Radio. Always a pleasure to be here, Peter. And it's only been a couple of weeks since I've seen you, or a few weeks, I, I guess. Exactly, yes. So as I was commenting before, we, before I hit the record button, I have been driving back and forth across country, which gives me a lot of time to listen to the events of the world. And although I started driving after October 7th, I started listening to a lot of commentary post-October 7th and all of the protests that are going on. And it seemed to me, and you're the only person who was not afraid to come on the podcast to talk about this, but it seemed to me as though with all of the left and I'm going to just put this in air fingers quotes, left protesting for Palestine or the pro-Palestinian slash pro-Hamas, if you will, pro-Gaza, if you will, 
protests going on across the United States. A lot of the youth that are doing it, a lot of the pro-union Starbucks workers United, for example, has a pinned tweet that they support Palestine on their Twitter feed. And it, the backlash that is now occurring, if perhaps there's been such an overreach with this war in Israel and, and with Hamas, that it might have a spillover effect with all of the union efforts going on. And that's, that's kind of what I wanted to have the conversation with you. It's, I get the sense that there's some pushback now in part due to this, and I don't know how deep it is or how long-lasting it will be. Well, I mean, I know you've done uh, on your podcast, Peter, a number of sessions focused with guests that have talked about the infiltration, if you will, of unions by Democratic Socialists of America, communists, and so forth. And this is just basically the latest manifestation of it, I think. And again, what happens is in the name of the labor unions that they lead or seek to lead, um, they are expressing views that a lot of union members, let alone the general population, find truly abhorrent. I mean, I think that's what it is. Now, is it going to be enough to dislodge whatever sense of control that they have or are seeking to have of the unions? I think it's too soon to tell. But there's this whole infiltration that you've talked about before, I know, going on. And now you see what you scratch it a little bit, you know, in a situation like this, and you start to hear what some of these folks really think. And then does that really represent the average Teamster, Steelworker, Unite Here, SEIU, you name the union? And it probably doesn't. And a lot of folks, appropriately, when you they see what happened on October 7th and the butchery of men, women, and children in Israel, it's like, how can anybody defend that, let alone support that? But that's some of what you're seeing. And again, as we talked about before you started recording, it's not just limited to labor unions, but we're seeing that in corporations and law firms and certainly colleges and universities are dealing with it and struggling to deal with it in a massive way. Well, so this gets a little more nuanced, and I'm going to ask this generically and try to nuance this. Is there, is this activity, this pro-Palestinian activity, masking an underlying anti-Semitism that is coming up from these kids, and primarily Gen Zers that are involved in the protest? Because, you know, you hear the chants from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, etc., which indicates a whole, whole eradication of Israel, mm-hmm. right? Which would indicate either you're going to slaughter them or you're going to somehow forcibly move them out, which gets in, you know, there's a whole 3,000 years of history there. But, you know, as it relates to today, is that an anti-Semitic point of view or is it we're just upset because of Gaza and yeah, some of these young kids are, uh, you know, they're pleased with what happened on October 7th. Well, yeah, I mean, look, and that that's a whole other separate issue. I mean, it, it's I think it's unfortunately a rather toxic stew. There's some parts of anti-Semitism. There's some parts of being sympathetic to the Palestinians. There's some parts of being David and wanting to defeat the Goliath. And ironically, Israel is seen as the Goliath in all of this. So I think there's quite a bit of all of these different things at play. So you can't it's very difficult to say you want to see Israel wiped from the earth and then deny being anti-Semitic. I mean, it's like, who do you think right. lives there? 
I mean, it's right. You can't. Yeah, that is the distinction in search of a difference. It's not possible to find one for sure. But again, yeah, it's a, it's an overreach for sure. I mean, I know that's the sort of the theme of what you wanted to talk about, and there's no question that it is. And I think you know, they're 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 the the folks that are driving a lot of these activities within labor unions and so forth, let alone beyond, are pushing the bounds of acceptable thought and expression to the edge and beyond. And in many different circles, it's having consequences. I don't know if, if it'll have consequences as quickly within labor unions as it does elsewhere, such as law firms refusing to hire students who are expressing these kind of views, um, you know, folks who are outing these students on campus for having anti-Semitic views. I think the labor union movement, as you well know better than I, and you're, certainly your listeners do as well, there's a there's a certain like uh, energy that's there and it's a propelling it forward. And this might slow things down on the track a little bit. I don't see it derailing it, let alone pushing it backward, but it's definitely an overreach and it's causing at least some people within the movement to go, wait a minute, what? I, I, my union is saying, what? I don't, you know, I don't believe in that. I don't support that. It's a whole other thing when they're sitting there talking about how dare the CEO make, you know, 1,400 times, uh, you know, a year what the average worker makes or look at the other, you know, benefits that he or she gets or look at how many years we've gone without a raise. All of that traditional organizing, you know, haves and have nots. That's a completely different thing, but when they start waiting, and again, we've seen the you know we've seen the tendency towards this already because labor unions have for years now, and in fact, gotten the NLRB to go along with it. It's like it does not have to be a traditional concept of wages and hours and and uh, working conditions, wages and benefits and working conditions. It's beyond that, and so we're already down that. So they felt like okay, well now we can speak about anything and everything, including you know Hamas's butchering of. 1,400 men, women, and children in Israel. Yeah, and that begs the question, what is out of bounds these days? Huh. Huh. I, I, you know, I'd, all I wish they would do is stop moving the damn goalposts, though, Peter. Right. Seriously, because it's like just when I think something is beyond the pale, we get something like that. I mean, it's like, so wait a minute, you're, you're, and I get, listen, let me say this. I think it's an important point. I can completely understand, and in fact, I'm personally sympathetic to people who have empathy for the people the, the men, women, and children of Gaza who are dying because Hamas has chosen to put their weapons and their command and control centers and so forth under hospitals, inside hospitals, inside schools, inside supposed safe zones, and are now getting you know killed because of the Israeli Defense Forces attacks and moving them out of their own territory. I'm, I think a lot of normal, compassionate, empathetic people would be uh, would see that as being something that is unfair and 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 certainly inappropriate to the uh, Palestinian people. But it is a whole other thing, a whole other thing entirely, to sit there and say, as you and I have talked about, where it's like, if you understand what Hamas, a terrorist organization, did to innocent men, women, and children as somehow being justified, no. I mean, that no, that no reasonable person can take that view, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think that's where a lot of people who, like this issue has been going on a lot for a long, long time in on college campuses. And I, I just pulled up a few moments ago, the UAW, which represents not just auto workers, they represent a lot of, a lot of college grads. Sure. They have had a couple of different locals, one in California, and I just pulled it up from 2015, 
that have had this whole BDS movement going on, which is the boycott, divest, and sanctions against Israel for years. Right. right? So this is 2015. It's probably been going on longer than that. And yet you're not hearing anything from the UAW's leadership, in part maybe because they just got over a big strike. But then you've got like the SEIU, which is Workers United, Starbucks. They've got their kids that are out there protesting. I think SEIU came out pro-Israel as the parent union. AFL-CIO, you know, is catching flack because they came out pro-Israel. And there's this there's this break of the older boomers who are running the unions versus the young kids who are taking over the unions. Well, absolutely. And I think you put your finger right on it. With I mean, where that could be very interesting in terms of a front line is specifically on academic campuses, right? Because as you point out, I mean, that's been a big area of interest for labor unions to organize graduate students, non-tenure track faculty, now students themselves, student athletes, and the, some would say, excessive tolerance for radical views on college campuses. So how does that then impact the brand of these unions, given their association with groups that, and groups of students and groups of other, and faculty and so forth, who sometimes hold these truly abhorred views. What does that mean? I could see that end up having some impact on their ability to organize. Certainly folks like that you and I know, Peter, very well, who are engaged in trying to keep um, employers from being uh, unionized. Certainly that's giving them a tremendous amount of fodder. Why would you associate with a union that supports X or Y? Some of those abhorrent statements. And again, that's something that's going to, I think, hurt them at least to some degree. Um, because it is such a clear departure from the more traditional territory where they're able to have a lot more effectiveness and a lot more free reign because it's talking about typical workplace stuff. Right. And then back to your point a moment ago, the free speech of protected concerted activities, if I want to go protest, yeah, this is different from BLM because tangentially that could be related to the workplace, right? But now you're talking about you know, 6,000 miles away and the slaughter of a particular race, you know, is that going to be protected concerted activity now? Well, I think under this NLRB, almost certainly it would be, but again, there's consequences well beyond what the NLRB says is okay and isn't though. Right. What does this, what does this do to likelihood of support for a strike? What does this do in terms of likelihood of support for in a union election? Right. I mean, what does this do just in terms of, just the overall perception of a union among the population, right? We, we, you and I have talked about it. We've heard this statistic bandied about many times, which is that public support for labor unions is at a, a near an all-time high. It bumped up against the, uh, certainly a high in 50-some-odd years recently in Gallup polls. You know, not many institutions enjoy that kind of support. Certainly neither major likely presumptive presidential candidate enjoys any kind of support like that, let alone Congress, let alone I would say probably 95% of the governors in this country. So unions as a concept enjoy very broad popular support, but if they find themselves swept up in things like this, that support is almost certainly going to erode because the only way you can have support like that is if you're this romanticized ideal that's free of these kind of real world uh, restrictions and concepts and baggage. Well, to, you know, to their credit, um, the SEIU, 
And this, I think it was a protest that happened on the 8th or 9th. The uh, SEIU forced the resignation of the vice president of the Connecticut local, who happened to be a communist. And it was, you know, it was interesting because here, again, you've got the lower tiered union officials, union members, et cetera, who are very far left, communist, et cetera, pushing the pro-Palestinian chant mantra, if you will, and the parent union saying, yep, you're, that's a bridge too far and you're gone. Yeah. But, you know, this is the interesting and I think very ironic thing, and I know you'll appreciate this, right? We all talk about and we focus on, and in fact, you recently presented on the topic of salts or moles, Mm -hmm. as you call it, right? Right. And, of course, all your listeners know what those are from an employment standpoint. But I think what we're seeing now, this could be an interesting talk itself, would be the moles and salts that are beginning to infiltrate union, international union leadership, right? Certainly local union leadership they are in a big way. What happens when that starts to happen? And I'm talking about the Democratic Socialists of America. I'm talking about communists and other true, real radicals. If they get into these positions of power to shape those international unions, then you won't have that kind of sanctioning going on of that local leader in Connecticut being forced to resign. It's going to be more the uh, rule rather than the exception. And I, I mean, I could certainly see that being part of their plan. Why wouldn't it be? Well, I think this fight goes back more than 100 years. Richard Trumka and John Sweeney opened that door when they took over the AFL-CIO in the mid-90s, late 90s, where they they revoked the ban on communists in the unions, and or at least at the AFL-CIO. And that door, once it was opened, is just blown wide open today. And, do you think what I said is far-fetched? I mean, could you not bowls no. and salts? taking over, eventually trying to take over the leadership of a major international union? Oh, no, not at all. I think that's it's well on its way. And <laughs> that has profound implications for the labor movement, for folks like us who deal with trying to help employers deal with unionization threats and so forth. And again, it just speaks to the larger issue that the whole idea of capitalism and how organizations make a buck and how employees understand how that works is something that, you know, employers really need to focus on and invest in. Otherwise, they're going to find themselves in a world of hurt. We're seeing it already. I mean, we're clearly seeing it significantly when corporate campaigns are deployed against employers, all of the different things. I mean, there is not a whole lot of daylight behind some between some of the rhetoric you see there and what you would see in a, you know, communist or socialist party platform. Well, and I think it's, it's interesting with the UAW strike, and this is a little bit off topic, but I think it, it dovetails into it. The UAW strike that just ended and it was a good contract. They got 25% increases, which interestingly enough, if you do the math, they were out on strike for six weeks, not all of them, but a lot of them were out on strike for six weeks. Their 25% increase was 11% on their base salary three, three, and four, or something like that, right? They lost 11.5% just by striking in total compensation, or at least their total wages. So that first year of that big bump is done. Mm-hmm. Um, but it and, went on strike, although they were getting strike pay, right? UAW had 800 yeah. million. 
Yeah, they had five hundred dollars a week in strike pay, but yeah. the the so moving that aside, I think the really interesting thing about that is the that they timed the expiration of all three contracts for April thirtieth, allowing them to strike next time on May first, and then Sean Fain came out and said, "We want or we encourage all other unions to do the same." So what are they pushing for? May first, for those that don't know, May Day is International Workers' Day, right? And they've been pushing for years in the far left to do a general strike, and this kind of sets the stage for that. Yes, anybody old enough to remember the news footage of tanks and ICBMs being paraded through Red Square? You know what day that always was? May 1st. Yep, yep. (laughs) Which, you know, goes back to your point is, are they getting more to the left are they getting taken over by the left and i think we're pretty close to it if not already there very much so absolutely and yeah does that portend well for jobs and capitalism probably not no but it, it really does present i think an opportunity for employers to sharpen some of their messages there about the politics behind what the unions are doing i mean again for a lot of employers, and you know this very well, and certainly your listeners do too, if you're sitting there having to have a fight for hearts and minds focused on their wage increase versus our wage increase, what they're asking for for benefits versus what we're proposing, you know, there's enough back and forth that a lot of people go, well, I think the union has a point. Well, I think the employer has a point. But if we're talking about completely upending the American economy and way of life and so forth, that still, even though... With the younger folks, unfortunately, because of our educational system, it's having less of a hold than it did before. But folks who are in their, you know, 40s, 30s, 40s, and beyond, they're going, no, 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 I don't want to give up the American way of life. I don't believe that the American economy needs to be completely drastically blown up. I don't believe in that at all. That could cause them to stop. But the problem is, and you pointed this out, those younger employees who... You know, again, they, they support socialism in unprecedented numbers. To go back to the original topic of what we've been talking about, they support Hamas's attack more than any other demographic, according to the most recent uh, surveys that are coming out. So there's some pretty frightening thinking that's coming out of our youngest workforce and oldest students, if you will. Uh, and again, I think that's just a complete failure, unfortunately, of universities and even the education system to create some balance in terms of what many of these young people are being taught. Yeah. And you and I, you and I did an episode on Gen Z workers and I, I don't quote me on the number, but I want to say one of the Pew studies um, or Pew polls estimated that 52% of Gen Z workers like socialism is either 48 or 52. It was in the fifties for sure. Yeah. Okay. Think it's a better system than capitalism, right? Which is, I mean, it's un, for a boomer like me. It's just an unbelievable concept that that could even be possible. I mean, how could we have failed so badly that that? And again, it's it's there's plenty of blame to go. Parents can be blamed, teachers can be blamed, administrators can be blamed, the media can be blamed. There's plenty of blame. Politicians can be blamed. So it's not just on schools, as I was talking about a minute ago. But it's like, wow, we we have really let things go. And business leaders. Past time, business. Oh, absolutely. Business oh, has a big responsibility in this too. But it's like, 
how we could let this go as bad as far as it's gone and as long as it's gone is beyond me. Well, and that's that's kind of where I'm leaning with this because there was, and I don't remember the billionaire's name, but he was a Harvard alumni, saw the protests with the um, pro-Palestinian at Harvard. Oh, Bill and, Ackman. Bill Ackman. Yeah, Ackman. And so he came out and he basically said, we want to know their names because we don't want to hire these people. So, a lot of and, law firms too, a lot. Right. A lot of law firms have basically said, listen, they've written to the law school deans of many of these schools saying, if you don't get your students under control, we ain't hiring any of them, basically. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. Right. Obviously. Yeah. But and that's, that, that's why I'm wondering, is that the wake-up point or the tipping point that people are saying, oh, crap, we've got a problem in our universities. Oh, crap, I we've got a... I, no, I definitely think it is. And again, some big donors, not just Ackman, who's a prominent donor, but who also, I'm sure, was writing some very big checks. There's a lot of folks who are basically now withholding. Now, again... It's going to take a lot for Harvard with their hundreds of billions of dollars of endowment for them to start being concerned. But there's enough there that it doesn't take much to, for this to snowball. And it doesn't take much for people to go, wait a minute, I'm not comfortable with this at all. But this has been, you said it a minute ago, a very long time coming. This has mm -hmm. been building up over a very long period of time. But the whole idea of you know tolerance and free speech and acceptance of everybody, unless you're Jewish. What? No, right. it's like, no, it's, it, if it applies, it applies to everybody. Yeah. And I, I think the, the nuanced part of that is, and I've been having some other conversations about Zionism versus the Jewish state, et cetera. And some people want to split hairs on it, but I don't think currently those hairs are being split by the protesters. Well, you can't you can't split the hairs if you if you assert that Israel does not have a right to exist. There's no hair splitting if that's the view that you right. take because it's all commingled for sure. Now, there obviously there's people certainly within Israel that before October seventh and even since I'm sure, you know, some people view the government should have done more to aggressively deal with Hamas and Hezbollah. Some people feel that Netanyahu went too far and. You should be more accommodating and supporting of a two-state solution. I mean, there's plenty of diversity of views, but if you have a monolithic view that the country of Israel doesn't have a right to exist, and you know that that's that's a completely different thing, and there's no nuance to that whatsoever. Yeah, the other it, I find this more interesting from a historical perspective. Everybody views this issue as being from 1948 forward, but. You know, you go back to 1915, and prior to 1915, the Ottoman Empire had Israel or Palestine for 300 years. And then you had the Balfour record or the Balfour letter, you know, World War One, and the whole British mandate and all that sort of stuff. It's complicated, and people are just, you know, out there chanting and protesting a oh, yeah. quote, well, and simple hatred, solution. And the hatreds have been going on for thousands of years. Oh, yeah. So yeah. the idea that, you know, some figure, the U.N., President of the United States, whatever, is going to create lasting peace among the please forget about it. It's not going to happen. But again, you know, we also have to think about it. And this is where my own personal biases come through. It's like, look, if you're talking about the only true functioning democracy in the Middle East and the unwavering ally of the United States, there's only one choice there, and that's Israel. I mean... You, you right. can sit there and 
criticize them for some of their expansionism. You can criticize them for their wall. You can criticize them for their overaggressive. You can criticize them for any number of different things. But at the end of the day, in terms of who do you support, you know, I mean, there can't really be any equivocation in my mind whatsoever about that. Well, and that goes back to the problem with education is you're talking about a theocracy versus a democracy. Right. And you're chanting for the theocracy? Well, and yeah, these are the same people who are, you know, kind of complaining about who the new Speaker of the House is and, oh, he's an evangelical Christian. And right. We can't have this and we must have separation of church and state. Okay, but what, what, about, what about over across the world there in the Middle East? Does that look like? Uh, do, do they separate church and state with right. some of what they're doing? Is is Iran uh, uh, separating church and state there? No. No, the, their church is running their state and fomenting terrorism wherever they can foment it. Right. Yeah. It's it it's interesting that our kids are where they are today. Yes. It's it's scary. It's scary. I, I mean, but it's part of a larger issue, though, Peter, and I know you have seen this as well, is you know, a lot people during the pandemic in particular, people for the first time because they were teaching their kids themselves at home or watching their kids learn the way you and I are talking over a computer. I mean, most people, you know, with their young children or even, you know, middle school or high school, it's like, hey, Junior, you got him or her from, you know, 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning till 3, 3.30 in the afternoon. I'm not really thinking about what you're teaching them. But now that kind of awoke people a bit to, what was being taught and some of what we've just been talking about in terms of what's going on on college campuses, some of these views that are being expressed by some professors is like, wait, what? Now, is it enough to have suddenly people go, wait a minute, I'm not happy to ship my kid off to grammar school, middle school, high school, whatever, and have somebody else deal with it with my tax dollars or if they're in a private school with my tuition dollars? No, it's still, people are still more than happy to have it, you know, in local parentis, have it be someone else's problem, but there's enough scrutiny now of what's going on there that I think it's, if anything, it's going to slow down the uh, the hurtling towards uh, whatever it was, entropy, Gamora, whatever you want to pick. Um, it's going to slow it down a bit, and it's certainly causing more scrutiny of what's happening there than was the case before. Yeah, I guess my question with that is, will it be sustained and continue and and I don't know. Or, uh, people people are so focused on their own lives and what's going on within their you know families and incomes and there's so many different challenges. I mean that's why you know most people are so incredibly ill-informed about some of these different issues, which is why they can find themselves supporting people who butcher innocent civilians. I'm like, what? How are you so yeah. ill-informed that you think that's okay? Or you get your news from TikTok, as we talked about, or from the Daily Show or Instagram or whatever. I mean, okay, not everybody needs to subscribe to the New York Times, the Washington Post, or the Wall Street Journal, but come on, people, a little bit. I mean, there's got to be a little bit of responsibility, even you know, even if you don't want to deal with whatever bias may exist within the traditional media. At least there, you've got reporters, albeit with a point of view and an axe to grind. It's more like real reporting rather than just, I mean, absolutely blatant propaganda from God knows who. Well, I, and that's where it comes down to basic principles. And if the news reports are true, October 7th, there's babies killed, women raped, etc. And 
so if you're listening to that news and assuming it's true, then you have to then dig a little bit deeper and say, okay, what's behind this? And then that goes to the history of, okay, how did Gaza come about? You know, where even the Egyptians won't take them in. Why is that? You know, there's just, there's no critical thinking on this. No, no. I mean, again, it's just, it's, it's so much today in terms of politics and issues lends itself legitimacy to both sides ism, but you mm-hmm. can't have both sides ism if one side is civilization. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it's civilization versus savagery. Okay. I mean, again, we're even seeing this, some of the stuff you and I see on, you know, X or whatnot in terms of what's going on in some of our cities and just the total breakdown of society that happens periodically. I mean, again, the whole response to the pandemic, I think, accelerated that too. The BLM movement, as we were talking about before, the George Floyd protest, people have short memories, right? People are like, they, they don't seem to associate things that we as a society allowed to happen two years ago, four years ago, whatever, as having a lasting impact on society, but it does. It does. If you allow certain behaviors to continue, if you allow Jewish students to be bullied to the point that they're hiding in their residence hall in Cornell, and you're not sitting there immediately suspending or expelling the students who are responsible for that, what do you? what is the signal you're sending to those people? Yeah, those are the adults in the room not doing yeah, that. The, right. The victims should be afraid, and the perpetrators have nothing to fear. That's the signal you're sending. Which we're also seeing in other aspects of our society as well. Exactly, as I was just alluding to, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, by the way, and this is kind of an aside, have been enjoying an audio book. I have the hard copy book here in my office, but it's called The War on the West. And it's by a writer by the name of Douglas Murray. And I'm enjoying the audio book because he has this cool British accent. So, um, but it's like a 12 hour listen. listen. That's easy yeah. to listen. Yeah, I would strongly recommend that, by the, the way. War but on it's, the West. Okay, I'll have to write that down. Yeah. yeah. Do the audio book because it's just, it's like, it's listening to Silk as he, ah, nice. as he narrates it. But in any case, well, Nick, calm. I don't know where we're going. I just wanted to like throw these ideas out at you because I was curious as I've been listening to all this stuff transpiring. And I thought, I wonder if this is the tipping point where some sanity starts to come back. God, I hope so. I would love to see that. Yeah, I would love to see that. And plus you were thinking, who can I get to talk about these controversial Exactly. (laughs) <laughs> who's not afraid to come on to the podcast and you're yes. the only one I could think of. <laughs> Very good. It was my right. pleasure, Peter, as always. Well, thank you, sir. We'll speak right. soon. Yep. Bye. So that was reputation partners, Nick calm. And he is the only one that had the courage to come on the podcast. Not that I checked with that many people, but it was a conversation that I knew he would not be afraid to have. And I'm not sure what we concluded from it, but it's been an interesting several weeks with all the protests and the backlash to the protests, etc. And we'll just have to wait and see where it goes from here. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter or X, the app formerly known as Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. Have a great week and until next time. Wow.
Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.